0: If you open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, which is after Jude, which is funny, then you'll see that beginning with verse 1 of chapter 2, you have a title called Message to Ephesus. And then beginning with verse 8, message to Smyrna. And then beginning with verse 12, message to Pergamum. Verse 18, message to Thyatira. Chapter 3, verse 1, message to Sardis. Philadelphia, Laodicea. If you look at... The message to Laodicea that begins in chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, because you say I am rich. Now the reason I'm reading this, and now you can turn to our text, which is actually in Genesis, um, chapter 12, The reason I'm reading this is that um, one of the negative consequences of the academy taking over the church, intellectuals scholasticism taking over the church, is that churches have become acclimated to receiving an objective discourse treatise from the pulpit and to having it be just truth. And people actually think it's good that the Word of God would be taught, preached in such a way that when you receive it, you will be able to apply it as best fits you. So Sally Wagner will see it applying to her in one way, and Mark will see it applying to him one in one way, and everybody can you know, kind of use it like a Ouija board, you know, a rabbit's foot, you know, and you just sort of, nah, 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 nah. well, there's my application. And when a pastor begins to apply the word of God to the people specifically, everybody thinks, hey, wait a second, that's not part of the bargain. The application belongs to us. You just preach the word and let the Holy Spirit apply it. And so if you open up the Bible and you look at Jesus speaking to the people that came to hear him, you look at Paul writing his letters, you look at... Jesus speaking to the churches of the different areas, you know that always there is a specific application. And typically, it's as much negative as positive. And so here, at Laodicea had problems, didn't it? They were neither hot nor cold, and so he said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And so what we see is that John writing to the church of Laodicea is very specific in what he says to them. Hey, here's your identity, here is your sin, here is your step of repentance. Now, repent or I'm going to snuff out your light. That's true preaching. True preaching should always act as if the preacher loves the sheep. And not that he's just some brain sitting in an office the rest of the week and then comes out and gives out truth. You're supposed to feel like when I speak to you, I must know what's going on in your brain. And can you imagine being Laodicea? When you received that letter, in Laodicea, do you think that the preacher knew what you were like in Laodicea? I think so. I think they all went, (laughs) you know, hey preacher, you know, leave the application to the Holy Spirit. You know, just preach the truth, and we'll make the application, or the Holy Spirit will make it. And then he says, well, actually, this is part of the canon of the New Testament. And you go, well, that's where my argument falls to the ground. (laughs) In other words, one of our problems is what we always do. When I say the kind of thing I'm saying, we're weaselly. And so what we say is, well, that was Jesus. Well, that was John. Well, that was Jeremiah. And so no matter what happens, we always try to act as if what happens in Scripture should never happen here. (laughs) How many times I've read people saying, well, that was Jesus. And so people think that you take the words of Jesus to a particular people, and then you take those words and you apply them to us in a way that allows everybody to buy in or not buy in, depending upon how they feel on a particular day and what their wife says to them after church right but really we don't even like our wives to apply scripture and we can't deny they know us <laughs> you know and the whole ball game is whatever happens we don't want to be convicted by anything we just want to be able to come and feel like we did our duty sitting under the preaching of the word and so today the preaching of the word is a big conspiracy where i say uh, thus said the lord <laughs> but notice the past tense You know, one time, a long time ago, in a certain context, Zitz im Leben, and it's not talking about facial things, in a particular place, God said this through a particular person that he had spoken to, and so that man knew what he was saying when he spoke to a particular place and a particular people with particular sins. But today, I haven't the foggiest clue who you are and what your sins are and what you need, and so I'm just going to pick a test of Scripture and just feed it to you. And then you can think about it and pray over it, and hopefully there will be something there for every one of you. Well, listen, that's completely bogus. No farmer ever feeds his cows that way. Farmers are incredibly detailed about the feed that they give to their animals. All right? And Jesus doesn't feed us that way. He takes us to what? To green pastures and quiet waters. And they're very specifically made for those of us who are intimidated by everything spiritual that he feeds us in green pastures and still, quiet waters. Because he knows that we're easily frightened. So that's my apology this morning to being specific as I preach. And specifically today to preaching about who we are as a congregation and what God's calling us to. Now, at that point, you might have a second objection. You might say, well, I'm willing for you to be specific and to apply it to me, because I think you do know me. Some of you I don't, but most of you I actually do. All right. But, because you know me does not mean that you should tell us as a church who we are and where we should go. And I go, oh, yeah, right. (laughs) Right. What on earth is the point of having a shepherd if he doesn't lead the flock? I mean, it sounds kind of dumb, doesn't it? And you say, yes, but this is America, and we're a democracy. And I go, yeah, yeah, I know that. So, was, so were the Israelites in the wilderness. They were a democracy. Democracy is nothing new. The people always think they know better than their leaders. Right? Right? I mean, is there one wife here that doesn't know what an idiot her husband is? Oh, that's sad. You should have been rocking and rolling in laughter at that point. All right, are there any kids here that don't know that their mother and dad are both wrong? And how about those of you that sat in lectures this last week? Do you think that your professor did a good job... So this morning, I'm going to be bodacious and actually do what I think God calls pastors to do. I'm going to be specific. I'm going to address our sins and what I believe God calls us to as a church, specifically. And I expect you to give me the deference of listening and not judging me and not hardening your hearts against me, but realizing that I do love you I'm unfaithful in many, many, many ways. But nevertheless, God's chosen for you to be led by a man who's a sinner rather than an angel who's perfect. All right? And to be preached to by a man who's a sinner instead of angels who are perfect. God could have sent you an angel, but look at me. Not so much. So... Being your pastor, I chose Genesis 12, 1 to 9, but here's the great thing. The great thing is that I'm not your only pastor. There are three of us, and actually David Carell told me what to preach on this morning. And often that happens. So here's what David Carell wants you to have preached to you this morning. He made me do it. Genesis 12, 1 to 9 please stand as we read the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today, we have a great, great conceit that we are highly evolved, fully integrated. And that everybody that lived before us was ignorant. And instead of loving their wives, hit them over the head with a billy club and dragged them in the cave to have their way with them. I use that as an illustration because there's no place that's more evident our our, our chronological snobbery than the issue of men and women. It's incomprehensible to us that any man before the last 50 years ever loved his wife. He just used her. And it's just the most ludicrous thing on the face of the earth to think that when the Bible records for us that Isaac took Rebekah into the tent and thus he was comforted in the death of his mother. You know, that's what scripture says. He took her into the tent, and he was comforted in the death of his mother. And then we look at people in the ancient patriarchal culture and think that we know more how to love women than they did. Do you understand? This is ludicrous. I assure you that all through history, men have loved their mothers and their wives and their daughters. We're not doing anything new here. All right? And so we look back at the old world and we think they're a bunch of stupid idiots. You know, a bunch of dummies. You know, the kind of people that, and I, you know, what am I going to say? If, I, if I'm specific, you're going to be offended. But I'm going to go ahead and be specific. You know, the kind of people that shop at Walmart. Right? The kind of people that shop at Aldi. The kind of people that live in trailers. You know, the kind of people who don't take care of their teeth. And this is our view of everybody that came before us, that if they'd had Walmart, they would have shopped at Walmart. And so we look back at Abram and we think, well, you know, Abram was there in an ancient patriarchal context you know, where the husband was like this and had no love for his wife, and God said, get up and go, and what was he leaving behind anyhow? What we don't realize is that Abram was leaving behind an extremely sophisticated civilization, the Babylonian Empire, and that in his area, his country, if you will, his nation, his city, for 500 years had been sophisticated. Longer than America has been sophisticated as we see it. That they had had sophisticated legal codes. That they had sophisticated language, sophisticated abilities to communicate. That they had precious stones. In other words, Abram was a very sophisticated rancher, farmer, outside of a very sophisticated city with a highly cultured environment. And he was 75 years old, and he was wealthy. He had so many servants that his servants formed an army when they needed to. That's how many there were. And God says to him at the age of 75, get up and go. So now I want you to feel the tension. This man has lived his life, has increased his wealth. He has a father who is named after the God that was worshiped in that place. His father's name literally was Moony, Terah. All right, because they worshiped the moon. So his father was an idolater. Abram's there, and Abram's ready to say, Look at what I have done with my own hands. The IPO worked. <laughs> okay, he's got all this wealth. He's got all these servants. Life is good. And God comes to him and God says, get up and go. Now think about this. What's Abram's response? Well, it's not just that God said, get up and go. It's also that God said, get up and go to Canaan. But is that what the text says? No, it doesn't even tell him where he's going. What it says is, get up and go to a place that I will tell you, that I will show you. So Abram is to leave behind his father, he's to leave behind his nation, he's to leave everything behind, and he doesn't know where he's going. He's simply to get up and to go. You know, come on, son, get up and come. Where are we going to go, dad? Dad. Just get up and come. Well, I've got studying to do. Where, where, where do you... what? I said, get up and come. Can you imagine us dealing with our children this way? Oh, man, we've trained our children to have absolutely no deference to us. None. So we get them, we tell them to do anything, even set the table. And they're like, when do I have time? Let alone just get up. And, 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 and get out of the room. Why? I'm comfortable here. You know? Think if it had been our children and how they would have responded to God. You know, God, if you want me to obey you, you better tell me where I'm headed. And you better tell me why. Well, because I'm going to make you a great nation. Oh, yeah, right. Get up and go. And I will show you. I will show you where you're going to go. And what does the Bible say? What the Bible says is that when God told him to get up and go, verse 4, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. (laughs) Now, all of you should be saying at this point, it doesn't compute. I mean, honestly, who at the age of 75, where everything's worked right, they're wealthy, have tons of servants, tons of animals, a sophisticated culture, a sophisticated city, good lineage, father named after the local god, reputable, they probably were rulers, and you say, get up and go. And where does he end up? Well, he, it's not at the center of the universe the way Babylonia is. It's Canaan. right? He doesn't even know that at the time, but what he does is he gets up and he goes. And so God interrupts My dad preached on this, and my dad would say, God is the great interrupter. And this is what I want to talk about with us as a church. None of us like to be interrupted. One of my favorite jokes, right? (laughs) What is it? Come on, somebody tell it. You know. Who's there? Interrupting cow? Who? Yeah. See. Okay, I'll do it to David. Knock knock. You're supposed to say who's there. Okay. Let's 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 start over. Knock knock. Interrupting cow. Moo. We don't like to be interrupted. You're in meetings. Somebody has a cell phone. There's a heavy conversation going on, and the cell phone rings. It's an interruption. But people, God interrupts us when we belong to him. That's what he does. It's called sanctification. David and Anna Talcott find out that their little Victoria Hope is likely going to die in the womb. And if she is born, that she is going to suffer, and they're going to suffer. And the response is, I didn't ask for this. And God says, follow me. I gave you that child. That child is not have problems because it got away from my attention. And, you know, I look at you and I think about your lives and I think what this congregation is, is just innumerable interruptions. That's what we are. God interrupted you with a husband who's lousy. God interrupted you with a wife who's lousy. A husband that doesn't love you and a wife that is not submissive. God interrupted you with children who are profane. God interrupted you with parents who really did not care for you as they ought. What I think is true of Church of the Good Shepherd is that this is the church of interruptions. God has blessed us as a church with interruptions because God really does conform us to his image. And so we have willy-nilly just all kinds of things happening to us all the time. And it's very difficult You know, you think about what you hear going on from the pulpit, you know, in in congregational meetings, or you talk to a friend in the church and you find out that they've been having problems. What you don't realize is those problems have behind them hundreds and hundreds of hours of the time of the older women and the elders and the pastors and the deacons. Nothing happens publicly that there's not an incredible amount of work that goes in privately, Right? And so, really, what this means is that God interrupts not just you with your suffering, but that suffering and those sins always interrupt the lives of the church. They interrupt the lives of the officers. Does this make sense to you? And so we're all in this together. If one suffers, we all suffer. Now this morning I want to talk about a little interruption that God blesses us with. It's nothing on the level of David and Anna. But it is obnoxious. And it is something that's at the heart of our identity as a church. And that is the fact that we live in a university community that is extremely transient. And therefore we lose up to a quarter of our people every year. We did have a year where we lost a quarter of our people in one year. And so what God does with us as a church is God's constantly saying, get up and go. People in this church are constantly being moved out, and we're having to meet new people and say goodbye at the same time. So what Abram had to go through in saying goodbye to his family and not knowing where he's going is going on among our people all the time. When I preach to you, as I preach, there's a lot of stuff that goes through my brain. And one of the things that goes through my brain is he's gone, she's gone, he's gone, she's gone. He's new, she's new. So as I preach, I'm aware of who I'm going to be losing in another few months and who's new. And I watch people's faces and I'm always processing the trans- transitional nature of our, of our people. I, it's just you can't help it, you know? Now, what does that mean for us? What it means for us is that we have to see this as a gift from God. We have to commit ourselves to it. And we have to live in such a way that we have faith that this is God's intent for us. Because if we say, you know, God has no agency behind the transitory nature of the people of our church. That that's just uh, something that is a reality of life in Bloomington. And we'll just live with it then you have no faith. What you have to do is believe that this is a gift from God, that it sanctifies us as a church, that it sanctifies his church beyond here, that it's good for us, good for the people coming, and good for the people leaving. And good for the church universal. If God puts us into an area of the country, of the world, where there's unbelievable turnover that's something we should look at and say, it's a gift of God. Thank you, God. Make me faithful in that circumstance. Now, let me illustrate this a little bit by talking about what it means in terms of new people. This last week, we got an email from a guy who's looking at a position at IU, and he, he thinks that they're a good fit for this church. And so, you know he would like to meet with us so fine you know we'll meet with him he needs a house you know there's a whole bunch of things going on and and we give him time and we give him attention but you know what's very difficult for us to do is we remember all the people that we've given time and attention to because they're moving and they're christians and <laughs> i mean it's hard not to be cynical you know Mary Lee helping a, a new professor and his wife retired as they move into town. She and the kids take all of the wood out of the semi truck. They, they bought a dance hall for, and they're going to use it in their new house. And Mary Lee helped them unload the semi. They're not here. <laughs> we have people live in our home. They're moving to town. They're not here. I can take you through and through. We almost have a joke among the elders and pastors that if we ever help anybody move to town, they will not come to Church of the Good Shepherd. I mean, it, it, am I right? I'm right. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was because I helped you instead of Mary Lee. That's why, you, that's why Stephen stuck. <laughs> that was nasty. 4-7? Seventh floor, oh man, that was, but what a gift, what a treasure, so. Now, think about this, that first of all, we help people move in who don't come here. Then think about the people that do come here, what we're thinking is, they'll be gone soon, why make any investment in them? They're just college students. I mean, doesn't this make sense? Right? God calls us to love and to serve people that we will not even have sometimes for six years. Sometimes we'll only have them for a year or two. We know that right away. And that's a part of being Church of the Good Shepherd. Now, it's hard because who wants to love people that will then divorce you? You know, you don't want to love people, they're going to end up and leave you behind. A number of years ago, we had a guy in this church named Mike Carnett. And Mike had a bunch of little boys. Every one of them looked like J. Marty Cope. You know? Stood ramrod straight. They had on that Oxford blue button-down khakis. And every one of them had hair that was like perfectly, not just over, but up in, you know, that little... If men are allowed to be cute with anything, it's that thing that goes up like that, right? Who has it here? Hey, come here, come on, come on. Every one of their boys look just like Isn't he cute? And then they had this little girl, and oh, 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 she was a queen in her castle. All these handsome, perfect brothers, and there she was, you know. And uh, then they decided that they were going to move uh, back to where they came from. And I remember going to a deacon's meeting. I don't know if you were there at that meeting, but I popped my head in, and I looked at him sitting around with all the deacons, and I said to him, Mike, what you're going to do, do quickly. Which is to say, if you're going to leave, just get out, would you please? And it was really a little bit obnoxious with him, you know? Why? Well, because I'm tired. I'm absolutely tired of pouring my life into people, and then about the time they begin to fire, they leave. So you pour your life into them, and then about the time where they pay into the church more than they take out of the church, they leave. That's the nature of this church. About the time that people get to the point where they are men and women of God who are prepared to teach and to love and to disciple others, they leave. That's the nature of this church. Okay? And it's difficult. And it's difficult for you. You know, you look around in the pew right now and just take a pot shot at how long the people around you are going to be here. They're going to be gone. And so God has given us a ministry of training people that we will never get the fruit from. That's what we do. A number of years ago, we were down at the chalet that uh, Tim and Ann's parents kindly share with us at times as a church. Beautiful view off the back deck. And the elders were in there for a planning meeting. We were trying to pray and to ask God what work he had for us as a church. Because every church has work. Some churches, the whole work of the church is to pacify one woman in the choir. (laughs) Right? You've all been in those churches, right? You know, my church growing up, there was this one woman that thought she had a great voice. And about every three months, she would get up and it was awful. It was like a screech owl. You know, except the screech owl sticks to basically one note. And this woman was like, "Woo, woo, and it wasn't even on pitch. It was horrible. Even idiots like me knew it was bad. And I think, as I look back on the church I grew up in, that one of the purposes of that church must have been to mislead her about the nature of her gifts. And so we were asking the Lord, what is the gift that he has for us as a church? What is his calling? What are we to do to be faithful? And Tim Wagner spoke up and he said, well, it's very clear that we're to train leaders. That's who we are. That's our DNA. That's what we're going to do. Well, I'd never thought of it. The minute he said it, it was clear to every man in that room that the Holy Spirit had spoken to us. I don't think Tim Wagner's the Holy Spirit, but what do you think is going on in Acts where it says that the Holy Spirit directed them? Do you think that it like, was let down with a hand on the wall? No, most of the times it's somebody in a group, they've been praying and the Lord reveals it. A man speaks. And so ever since then, we have disciplined you as a church to focus on training leaders. And it is a discipline. It means that the preaching here is always going to be more intense than it will be at another church. Because you don't make leaders by giving them cream. (laughs) You know? Does this make sense? How do you make leaders? Well, leaders have to be disciplined more rigorously than people who are going to be followers. Look at Moses. He murders a guy. Then he's out in the wilderness for 40 years. What about Paul? How about Paul? Hey, hey, Paul? He was not just disciplined before God called him, but after God called him. He was constantly disciplined, and not just with the thorn in the flesh. He was being shipwrecked and beaten. It was like Paul was constantly under the discipline of God. What about Jesus? You know that the Bible says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Okay, So in a church that's forming leaders, there's always going to be a more intense, direct discipline of the congregation than there will be in churches where they exist to make a lady think she has a good voice. <laughs> because all you have to do to be faithful there is let her get up and sing. it only last five minutes. Every three months, and then your job is over and you can sit back and relax for the next three months. Now, you know that I'm kind of joking with you. I don't really believe that that... I really believe that the elders failed there. Because when you allow people to tell you what their gifts are and to use what they think their gifts are, that's a perfect prescription for failure in a church. One of the principal jobs of the elders' board of a church is to go around telling people, no, you actually don't have that gift. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. And so Moses is told, get up and go to a place that I'm going to show you. And Moses is obedient, and he gets up and goes. And he leaves behind all the sophistication. He leaves behind his family. He leaves everything behind. And on obedience, he gets up and goes. And that's the call of God to this church. There's no question in my mind. We are called constantly to get up and go. Now, you might say, well, how come you've been here the, the whole time? And I'd say, my heart goes every time one of you leaves. And hey, have you thought about this? Joseph and Heidi and Tate. And you, those of you who are new, you're wondering, well, who are they? Well, that's our son and his wife and our grandson who were here and who could have stayed here forever and made a very good income, thank you. And instead, they moved up to Indy and are involved in a very, very tiny, struggling work of planning a church there. And the reality is, we don't see Joseph and Heidi anymore. Okay? And every time somebody leaves this church and goes somewhere, our heart goes with them. So, all right, you say, well, it's not you getting up and going. I say, well, but my heart is getting up and going. You're leaving, you're leaving, you're leaving, you're leaving, and our hearts go and go and go. And we have one of two choices. We either say this is the work of the Lord and we thank him for it. And we're going to give ourselves to it zealously because it's clear that it's what God wants us to do. And so we're going to start a pastor's college so that men and women can be trained to be pastors in their wives, and then go out to other churches with an expectation that the preaching is going to have something to say to people. Something! And yes, that means that we're going to have your parents come and visit and they're going to every single time look at us and say, this is a cult. Because they've never heard a sermon that says anything. And they think there's something wrong here. (laughs) You know, we go, no, actually, something right here. (laughs) And they say, well, do you think you're the only ones that do things right? We say, no, but that, yes, we think we do have it right. And if you go back in church history, all through church history, you find sermons that are actually pertinent. (laughs) Here's a radical idea. (laughs) All right, I'm sorry. Okay, And then people say to us, like Wayne said, his relatives said last week, well, are you the only one that can have a seminary? No, but Harvard. Do you go into Harvard Yard, and do you say to Harvard, what gave you the audacity to start a college when there are plenty of good ones in England? And there were just a few thousand of you in the area. I mean, how stupid. What an ignorant little... Stupid, small, humble work. And then, as soon as Harvard went Arminian, they started Yale. Whoa, how stupid. Two schools within a few miles of each other, and there's just a few thousand of you in the area? I mean, how stupid. Look, how about Indiana has a good seminary? Is that okay with you? You say, nope, nope. Seminaries are supposed to serve a national constituency. I go okay I get it it's always about spiritual pride isn't it no man can ever walk by faith because all the other men are prepared to stomp him like what's that game whack-a-mole you know Bloomington shouldn't have a pastor's college who do you think you are and I say, <laughs> we've got men here and women, their wives, and they need to be trained to be pastors and pastors' wives. Why should I send them off again to Escondido, California, where Daryl Hart's giving lectures? I mean, really? <laughs> it's wacko. Whack-a-mole. <laughs> and another one I really like is Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. Okay, listen, every single school that you look at as being reputable and that you think should serve us fine, they were started in humility as a reform. Where do you think Harvard came? Where do you think Yale came? Where do you think Princeton came from? That's where these schools came from. This is our response to what we see as the needs of the church today here in Bloomington. And so if we're going to live by faith, join us. If the pastors and elders and the deacons are going to give their lives to training the future pastors and elders and their wives of the church, that's what we say is the call of this church. You have the privilege of joining us. Think of Abram's family. One dude says, "Uh uh-uh, not me. I understand bifurcation. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to go with you, Abram. I'm staying back here where it's nice. No, come on, come with us. Come with us. It's a great ride, it's better than anything Walt Disney has. I mean, our cliffs are intense. When we go over the edge and look down to the bottom, it's scary here. I've never been scared on a Walt Disney ride. Not one of them. (laughs) They're for children, but now that you're an adult, come to Church of the Good Shepherd. (laughs) Get up and go. People, this is our ministry. Our ministry is to get up and go. Our ministry is to love the people that come that are new. Our ministry is to be committed to those that go. Our ministry is to not resent the people that go. Our ministry is to train them as long as we have them. And that's going to require a certain discipline to us that other churches don't require. You're going to have to be willing to be quick in the discipline. Your kids, you get 18 years. We don't have 18 years. We have just a few years, and so the discipline is rather rigorous. And you go, what do you mean discipline, excommunication? I say, no, 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 that almost never happens. What I mean is, David, do you really have to wear your hair like that? Do you know that the older women are offended? No, don't worry, his hair is fine. Oh, she doesn't doesn't think it is. Well, you know, one of my favorite jokes also is, if a man speaks... And there's no woman to hear him. Is he still wrong? (laughs) I love that joke. (laughs) Not my wife, but every other woman in this church. And so, look, Abram is a good way for us to process our life as a community. And people, we're not done. We're not done with the pastor's college. We plant churches. Because why? Well, because the men that come out of the pastor's college, can you imagine them going into the PCA and serving? Some of you know the PCA. Imagine it. (laughs) You know? They're going to say, we need to exercise discipline. And the session of most PCA churches is going to say, we exist as elders to keep you from disciplining anyone. (laughs) And then they're going to try to preach, and the elders are going to say, as elders, it, it is our our constitutional duty to protect the congregation from your preaching. And you go, oh, come on, you're overstating the case. I say, yeah, 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 I'm overstating the case. I have tons of pet friends who are pastors, right? And my heart belongs to them, and we talk. And the fact is, a huge number of the sessions of PCA churches think their job is to protect the congregation from the pastor. Can, does this make sense to you? And those that don't have that problem have the problem of a pastor who simply will never say no or preach about sin to his congregation. So, betwixt the two of them, they lick the platter clean. <laughs> and what I mean by clean is nobody's ever disciplined because either the elders are opposed to discipline or the pastor's opposed to discipline. And so you're going to send the men from our pastor's college out to churches like that? How's that going to work? And you say, there we go again. We're alone. And I say, where do you think Harvard came from? Where do you think Yale came from? Where do you think Princeton came from? I went recently to the, to the school that my parents and a few other couples started in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, called Delaware County Christian School. And I went and looked at it. I walked around the campus. It wasn't in session. I looked at the, at the uh, whatchamajiggy, the uh, things on the walls, the, uh, what do they call them? Plaques. Thank you. Plaques, Lawrence. You should know that word. <laughs> and I'm looking at all this stuff, and I realize I would never send my children to that school. Some of you probably went there. We've had people from that school in this church. Why? I don't want to get into it, except to say the work of reform is constant. Have you noticed this with God in your heart? Have you noticed that God, whether you're 50 or 20 or 10, that God always is reforming you? That's sanctification. Well, it's institutional too and we need to be faithful to doing the work of institutional reform. Do you know a motto of the Protestant church has always been, the church reformed, always reforming. The church reformed, always reforming. So don't ask us to apologize for reforming the church. This is our commitment. This is necessary. This is good. And so you're not just going to be getting used to people coming in and leaving, coming in and leaving. You're going to be used to training leaders, and you're going to be used to reform. All the time, reform. And when you get to heaven, then you can stop. Because a Christian wants three things with respect to sin. Justification that it doesn't condemn, sanctification that it doesn't reign, R-E-I-G-N, and glorification that it might not be. But here ain't glorification. Here we have sin, and we have it as a church, we have it as marriage, we have it as families, we have it as individuals. And the reform is constant, and we're going to give ourselves to it. Now, what does that have to do with the name change? Look, we want to discipline you as a church to see the work as it is and we want you to sign on to that work which is to sound a clear note in a day when postmodernism is always trying to nuance and equivocate. It's always trying to be murky, cloudy, unclear and inoffensive. And so clear note is, you know, it's like, here we are! That's what preaching and teaching and dis- discipleship is supposed to be. It's supposed to be painfully clear. Now, do I like the name? No, I don't like the name. I don't know anybody that's like the name, except when I hear your objections to it. And then guess what? I start to like the name. because what I see is that the objections are very good objections. And what they show are areas where we need to grow. So, for instance, somebody says, Well, I like the fact that we have uh, a name which is humble. And so I think, Is ClearNote humble? And I think, <laughs> Yep, it's pretty humble. And then somebody else says, I like the name ClearNote because it's humble, whereas Church of the Good Shepherd is proud. And I go, <laughs> Church of the Good Shepherd isn't proud, it's humble. And you say, well, how could you say that? And I had somebody in the first service ask me to tell you this, so I'll tell it to you. I told them, but I told them because the first service predominantly has people that have been here from the very beginning. Everybody thinks that we named this church Church of the Good Shepherd because that's what I wanted, right? You've heard that, right? Everybody in that meeting heard that. You just don't remember you heard it. Rita Cuffey spoke up, and she said, I know that name that Pastor Bailey would like. So here's the story behind Church of the Good Shepherd. When I was in Wisconsin at my former church, we left the PCUSA, the mainline denomination, and went into the PCA. And I was preaching in John 10, where Jesus talks about the nature of the good shepherd, and he says, I am the good shepherd. My heart was caught by the text. My heart was caught by the statement. And so I said to the elders, I'd like the new church to be called Church of the Good Shepherd. Right? So we went into an elders meeting, which there, it was the elders meeting that handled these things, not a congregational meeting. And so the elders voted, and I was the moderator, and I was stupid in how we voted. And instead of the church being called Church of the Good Shepherd, it was called, what is every PCA church in the country called? Grace Presbyterian Church. And I was so angry. I love the elders. They love me. I was so angry that I walked out of the elders meeting and took a walk for 15 minutes. I had steam coming out of my ears. Now, a lot of it was my fault, because I'd set up the voting in such a way that if I remember correctly, three votes won. I think there were like ten of us in the room. Three votes won. I was stupid in how I set up the voting. So I had myself to blame. And I'm convinced if we'd voted again, having narrowed it down to two names, that it would have been anything but Grace Presbyterian Church. But it's now up there. It's still Grace Presbyterian. So I told Rita Cuffey and You don't know who Rita was, but she was an older woman who was for years my best friend here in town. Wonderfully godly woman. So I told Rita Cuffey that back at the church formerly known as Prince. And Rita heard that story... Rita heard that story, and she came into this congregational meeting before I was the pastor here, and she said, I know what Tim Bailey, I know what Pastor Bailey wants this church to be called, Church of the Good Shepherd. Well, here, I didn't want the church called that. Do any of you take a guess why? Because here, the battle was over me at the church formerly known as Prince, and all I could think of and have ever thought of with that name is that we think I'm the Good Shepherd. And so it's always been a horribly humiliating name. And I've never wanted to tell anybody that because I don't want to dishonor Rita. She was doing what she thought I wanted, and I understand why she thought that, and I haven't wanted to trash a name that is precious, if you can just separate me from it. But I've had people say to me, are you the good shepherd? I know that's what they're thinking, and it just, it's just embarrassing to me. <laughs> So people say, well, Church of the Good Shepherd is a a proud name. And I say, no, actually, it's very humbling. Because I shut my mouth and I go along with it. Well, now you know my relationship to Church of the Good Shepherd. That's how I feel about the name. That's not why we're thinking about changing the name. That's not it. The reason we're thinking about changing the name is that we want to bring the weight of this church to bear on the work that we do of planning churches, of a pastor's college, we want there to be auditory synchronicity. (laughs) We want people to hear the name Clearnote and then to support Clearnote Church in Indy because they know this church, they know our reputation, and it transfers to them because the name's the same. That's why. We want Clearnote Pastors College to be gain capital and dignity and gravitas, and for that name to carry on. We want people to be able to understand this is a church that sounds a clear note and trains leaders to go out and sound clear notes. That's it. Now, can you make a case for getting up and going to where God shows us for the name Church of the Good Shepherd? In other words, does the name... Church of the Good Shepherd serve faithfully in the same way that Clearnote does for the vision that God has. Absolutely. <laughs> Nobody is saying that the word Church of the Good Shepherd does not do a good job of describing the character and the work of the men and women who will leave this church and be leaders in other places. They will be good shepherds because why? Because the Good Shepherd does what? He lay. come on, He lays his life down for the sheep. So nobody's going to say to you, well, you're not spiritual if you don't vote for Church of the Good Shepherd or Clear Note or something. It's simply auditory synchronicity. We want people to recognize our work by our name. All right? And so if you think that Church of the Good Shepherd does a better job, God bless you. I have absolute confidence that some of those who have lived in my home over the years will vote f- against ClearNote. <laughs> I know my family, <laughs> you know? And will I be resentful? No, no, no. I already told Mary. Mary, where are you? I already told Mary. Tell them what I told you. Yeah, and and did I mean it? Was there any tension to my saying that to you? Not at all. In fact, in the elders board, we have a sort of standing rule that any vote that passes unanimously is not quite trusted. There's enough Scottish in us, you know, that we don't quite trust coying kind of together kind of big hug votes. We like somebody standing against us, and this time it was the gray-bearded one. (laughs) That man there. All right, so that's the story behind it. Abram's told, get up and go. He's not told where he's going. It's not because he's good. It's not because Abram is so righteous and God knows he'll be obedient. It's simply the call of God to get up and go. That's what we have. We have a call of God to get up and go constantly. You will get up and go. That's the nature of our church and its ministry. It's rigorous. It's better than any, uh, what do they call them, uh, Roller coaster. It's better than any roller coaster, at least at at Disney World or Disneyland. Matterhorn, one of the greatest disappointments of my youth. I couldn't believe how boring that ride was. (laughs) You couldn't even see the fall off because you were inside some stupid mountain all the time. (laughs) Any of you been on the Matterhorn? (laughs) It's like so stupid. They should let you see how you could die if you wanted to, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so love the ministry of the church and give yourself to it every single one of you has has a calling in that calling little children you love the new people and you don't think well they'll be gone soon you love them you take them on as your older brothers and older sisters you don't resent them when they're in your home taking your dad's time right Nicholas right right Okay, let's pray.